0: Welcome to Talking Gardens. I'm Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated. In each episode of this series, I'm asking people to tell me about their dream gardens. My guest this time is Jekka McVicker, plantswoman, grower and author, known as the Queen of Herbs, who runs Jekka's Herb Farm near Bristol. So Jekka, if you could create your fantasy garden, your dream garden or landscape from all of the things and places you've seen, all of the plants you love, what would be the first thing that you would you would want to include or is there a place that would particularly inspire you that you would
1: have to include i don't know about include but i'd like to rephrase your question of how would i actually start to create a garden and from the experiences that i've had and from the past that i have been so lucky to travel one of the biggest influences was going to China and seeing these tiny scholastic gardens they are tiny and how they've used every single space to either share a view create a view I I can't explain to you how how much of an impact that had of the sharing of a view you know, you create something so you could actually be seen from somewhere other angle or to create a picture, to create this, this image that you had that as you came around the corner, there would be a picture. I'll never forget, I saw this wall. It was a horrible concrete wall and they'd grown bamboo over it. And then when you're walking along this passage, you came to a window that had had a picture frame all the way around the outside. So it looked like you were seeing a picture of bamboo. And it was all that framing and create, borrow, and when you have, say, a church in the background or a hill in the background of your garden, making that hill or that church become part of the garden And I sent you a picture, and that was of a long stretch of water. And then there was this sort of tabernacle at the end of it, which wasn't in the garden. And it was, but it felt as if it was in the garden. So every time I create a garden, I try and create pictures, however big or however small it is. We don't talk that much about Chinese
0: garden design, do we? But it's obviously had a massive impact, whether we realise it or not, I think, in in what we do, especially, as you say, about borrowing the landscape, framing views, things like that. So when did you go to China?
1: Over 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It had, um, I mean, even down to, because it was such a small space and they used very few plants but it's if, even to the extent of that the pathways were you go and you then you turn at right angles. It was so that the bad spirits couldn't follow you, and whenever you went into a garden, there was always a step up and over, so there was always a ledge you had to walk over. Even with the doors in the old houses, you had to walk over a ledge because the spirits couldn't go up and over. Uh, it's all that kind of thing. But it was, and um, the use of water. The use of water in a small space, even how they had their seats so that they were framed so that when you saw someone sitting, they looked like they were in a picture and part of the landscape, even though this landscape was tiny. It's interesting, isn't it? Because
0: I suppose if you're trying to translate that to, I don't know, someone's suburban back garden you know, it it can seem difficult to take lessons from a place like that. Oh no, but... it's not.
1: No, it's not <laughs> because if you're doing it, say you've given a rectangle, you could then make your path zigzag. So then suddenly you've got something, and then you'd have a tall structure or a trellis that you could see through. So therefore, you make another room beyond, and you. Can, I, so yes, this is not too difficult if you, if you just stop and take on those very simple principles. It's, it's not too difficult.
0: And these these scholastic gardens, what area of China are they in? If somebody Suzhou.
1: To, Suzhou.
0: Lovely. Is there anywhere else you can think of that was a big inspiration to you that you think, well, if I could have a little taste of that in my
1: fantasy garden? I think in my fantasy garden, there are two things that I'd like to bring into it. One was I was lucky enough to go to South Africa for the herb trade of South Africa to meet the Zulu, try and convince them to grow plants rather than take them from the wild. That was an interesting experience. But the organisers who brought me over kindly gave my husband and myself three days in a national park, but it was a tiny national park. And we got taken up onto this sort of escarpment. And the view from there... Across, and there were real rock formations in there that are obviously really ancient. But it was the feeling of how the human race is so arrogant when it comes to nature, and how we've tried to impose ourselves and dominate but how insignificant we are. And that landscape made me realise I could have been on Mars or anywhere, looking back at Earth and how tiny we are. You know, we're like ants and we just charge through everything and try and change everything. And it's just so sad where, you know, rewilding is great, but actually looking at that landscape, it had been looked after by the animals they had landscaped it the rewilding was the wild it wasn't rewilded the wild looked after the wild and that has a real how we place our plants and how their plants relate to each other really matters
0: and did you have any success
1: no. With the, <laughs> no, they cast the sagomas, the witch doctors cast my bones, and that was the end of that. And another area that really has a huge impact again, I was lucky enough to go to Malaysia for the Malay government about herbs in tourism. It's amazing where herbs have taken me. And one of the places they took me to, the Malay government, was to Fraser Hill, which is a, a rainforest. And one night, I was taken on a night walk in a rainforest. If you ever, ever get that chance, then you are just go. Because, again, it makes us as human race insignificant. The cacophony of sound, of nature being so busy at night. I mean, like, so busy. It was It was stunning it was totally stunning and i can hear it now from the insects to the monkeys to i don't know what making incredible noises and and the smell and the and the actual feeling of the atmosphere because we have dank cold there high humidity and at night it seems even closer and it feels like the air is actually solid an experience again which When I create gardens, I try and create them aware of, you know, pollinators. If you think, I've been going hmm, near enough four decades commercially and everything has changed in that time. But one thing that hasn't changed in my plants is they are, the group of plants I grow are the best plants for pollinators. And I've been very aware of how birds and butterflies and pollinators and the tiny tiny flies all react within my gardens and again we've always been peat free I know it's trendy now but in 1985 we were peat free which was nearly impossible in those days and they accused me of causing my customers salmonella and listeria. And now of course, everyone is peat-free, which is pretty bonkers because now it's really difficult to get the product. We're not geared up for it yet, I don't think, not properly. But it's very interesting that everything that I did back then has come full circle and this actually being aware of our presence in the garden is also now on trend.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned having gone peat-free so early and that there are issues with supply of peat-free products for people now. But how how do you manage? Do you create your own growing medium?
1: Um, Well, for the garden, yes, it's all all my recycled waste over the last 40 years. So everything we use, we recycle, we have compost. But I don't use that in my potting compost because I don't have a steriliser and I don't want to pass something on that I might have picked up. Because I've always been organic, so therefore, you know, things happen. Nature happens. That's the other thing. We want to control everything. We want to zap everything. No, no, no. You shouldn't. You should work with it.
0: So when you decided to go peat-free, like you say, there have been supply
1: issues with
0: people getting peat-free mediums now. Um, And what do you use for the nursery?
1: Um, I'm very lucky. I've worked with a compost company for the past 25 years. And they've mixed my mix for me. I had one lot that was made with duck poo and all my plants went yellow. <laughs> <laughs> I had another lot there where the salts of the koya were wrong and, I, and burnt all my roots. And I had another lot. No, I mean, you, you've got to understand, again, back to this, you've got to work with it. It is not easy. Peat is just an inert subject. It is absolutely amazing. It is totally easy. I never, ever grew in just peat, ever. I had peat mixed in with my compost, but I've always used bark, and I've always used grit, and I've always used loam. And all the loam has, comes from recycling as well. I mean, it's not an easy medium because and now, of course, because everyone wants bark, it's not composted well enough or it's not fine enough and I will always smell it when it comes in and if it smells too much of pine, I will hold it for another few months before I use it.
0: Sounds like it's always a lot of trial and error and like you say, it's an evolving, living, moving thing that, you know, and because you're you know, you were foraging ahead and with all of these things, with organic, with peat-free so early, I'm assuming that that meant there was a lot of trial
1: and error along the way. A lot of disasters. Yeah. <laughs> Serious disasters. But it doesn't matter if, you know, at that time, once I stopped being wholesale, you know, when you're wholesaling and you've got all these people putting you under pressure to produce plants by X, Y and Z, uh, the only my milestones were things like Chelsea Flower Show, where I couldn't afford to get it wrong. So I always grew something else just in case. I I had a crop failure. You know, something came along and obliterated. I couldn't rely on just having that. So we're growing this year for two Chelsea gardens, even though I said I wasn't going to. Somehow or other they managed to convince me to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And one year I'm going to have no pressure. And so I will grow the for the, for those garden designers, I will grow extras of something different just in case, and then, when I get obliterated rather than go like a lot of nurseries who go sorry, now it's failed, and so then garden designers got to cope I'll say that failed, but I have grown you this, so they can go Phew. yeah, thank goodness <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's not what I wanted, and it's not on my list,
0: but yeah, I have something instead. It is a lot of pressure, isn't it, growing to order like that for such a big show? It, well, I care. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I mean, way back when you made these decisions to, to do things like to be organic, you know, wh- where did that come from? I, I, it all seems like you say it's all come full circle. It's so obvious to everybody now. But when well, you were when pushing I, against the when, establishment. In
1: 19, I had my children in 1982 and 1983. And my husband was launching satellites from French Guiana at the time. And so I was at home with these tinies. And you've got to realize back then there wasn't nursery care. And I didn't have a family group around me to help me look after them. So I couldn't go back in to the profession I was trained in. Um, Which was? I was in television. And so I decided that I would stay at home and... It was literally I had my herb garden and I'd, I would I read a serious book on organics back then. I, I'm trying to say her name was Balfour. I think it was Aunt Balfour. I most probably got that wrong. My grey cells aren't as sharp as they were. And she had such an influence on how, you know, the earth and the soil is like the engine. And if you look after the engine everything else will look after itself. And everyone kept saying, you know, uh, you can add X, Y and Z. No, no. If you feed your soil and if you really nurture your soil, then you will, you know, everything will grow because you've got the whole sustainable unit within the soil. And she was real, really a leader back then. And I took that really on board and then I thought about your potting compost, which was called substrate in those days because it wasn't composted. And I was thinking about how if you're growing in a pot in a container, how that is the engine of your pot and how you had to get that right. And and of course, I'd been reading about peat and how it wasn't sustainable and it was just about how climate change. I mean, I was talking to people back then. About climate change, and how you know we are—we were going to have no longer rain. We're going to have deluge, and how we're and had the, because it was just before we had that hurricane go through England, you know, and everyone's polytunnels blew down. You know, we've really got to wake up, and we have taken so long. Well, some people would say we're still not awake. Still a
0: lot of work to do. Phenomenal. Mm. But it does feel in the gardening industry, at least, that some of the messages are finally getting through.
1: I think so. I think there's a little way to go. I'm being diplomatic.
0: (laughs) No, don't be diplomatic, (laughs) Jack. Of
1: course I am. am. (laughs) Um, No, I'm not renowned for it, but I am. Well, talking about your
0: fantasy garden your ideal place, you've said that you would like a taste of the scholastic gardens that you saw in China with the lovely framing devices and that maybe that sense of atmosphere, the feeling that you got from being in those uh, landscapes in South Africa and in Malaysia in the rainforest where you sort of found your place in the world, you realised how insignificant you were and how big and bold nature is and how wonderful it is. If you had to pick... A design feature that you, you picked up on that you think, oh, I just I would love to have that in my dream garden. Is there anything
1: that yes, you would well,
0: back to China
1: is yeah. the moon gate because as soon as you enter through a moon gate, you're entering through a picture. You are walking into the picture. You walk through that frame into the picture, and I've given you the best um, moon gate of all to look at, which is from the Lingering Garden. And that's a tiny garden. I mean, it's tiny. But, I mean, if you look at that, it is an absolute picture. And you want to go through and you can see the path going off. I've just finished designing a garden back at home, back on, on the farm, uh, to try and cut my nursery down so that I'm not being a potting machine. We've converted an area that was hard-standing for sales stock, to this garden. And I've based the d- design on the symbol of infinity, which is the figure eight. Mm. And within that figure eight, because you've got your two circles, and then I've got now I've got a circle in the middle. Everything is about circles. I love circles. Because it was Steiner who said, when you walk in a circle... And you've got low mood. You're looking down and you follow the path. You don't need to make a decision. You can just keep on walking. Whereas if you come to a right angle, which you do in the Chinese gardens, you have to make a decision, do I go left or right? Whereas in the circles, you don't have to make any decision. You can follow the rhythm of your feet. So I've got that. And then within the circles, I have created a circle within the middle, which is a feature. And the very center, it is a water feature because of water playing a game. And then I've created petals. And each petal will be a different growing thing. So you'll have a culinary garden as one petal so that people can take that the size of that home to their garden or an annual herb garden or a medicinal garden or an evergreen herbs or UK native herbs. So you can see how things grow and how they relate together.
0: And the moon gate, of course, for people who don't know, is a sort of big circular opening, like you say, that would frame the garden beyond in that beautiful style And often it is sort of rocks and evergreens and, you know. Yeah, and and the shape of the trees as as you come through too. Just stunning. And if there was a person that you were going to share this dream garden with?
1: Well, there have been two people who have been hugely influential. One I've known all my life and I really regret not being able to see her. I've not seen her now for three years and that's Penelope Hobhouse the garden
0: designer yeah the garden designer
1: she was a friend of my mother's I was at school with her daughter and she wrote the forward to my first book her sense of plant and planting and how she puts plants together was a revelation and the other person I'd love to share with and I'd actually love to talk to right now is Beth Chatto. She had a huge influence on me because she came to Chelsea one year and I'd done, uh, it was 2009, and I created this huge garden. In fact, I'd come in on a cancellation. I was meant to be doing a show garden and my sponsors pulled. So I had all these plants that I'd grown and I would put them and I rang the RHS and they said, yes, yes, we, we have space, but it's the Not, not Cuts garden they've pulled. And it's sort of, it was huge. And I said, okay, fine. And Beth saw this garden and she said, Jekka, quit at the top. They'll always remember you. And I did. That was my last big floral exhibit. She was absolutely right. And she's always given me sound advice. Again, she was a great lady for right plant, right place. And used to tease me when I got it wrong in her eyes. And then I would qualify it because. And uh, no, she was great. Absolutely fantastic.
0: In your dream garden, if you were to have a particular plant or a particular group of plants or even a style of planting that you couldn't live without, what would you choose?
1: The group of plants I couldn't live without are the Lamiaceae.
0: The nettle family. Is yeah, that
1: exactly that. <laughs> or you could say the mint family, yeah. because it is mint, oregano, thyme, lavender, sage, napita, manada, basilicum, basil's. You so know. you've been very
0: clever there. I've said, choose a plant. And you've said, I'm going to choose a whole family that has loads in it. <laughs> <laughs> you see?
1: So, yes, I mean, I couldn't choose just one. Yeah, It'd be impossible, but uh, the thing I love about the Lamiaceae family is they're so promiscuous. So I have managed to now raise unique plants from their, the fact that they all intermarry <laughs> very easily. So I've got some lovely new times, and I've got a new mint, and I've got a lovely rosemary. My latest new rosemary, which will be on sale this year, is Green Dragon. Uh, Jecker's green dragon. It is wonderful, great flavour, beautiful dark blue flower. Now, a great upright habit, whereas my Jekka's rosemary is sort of arching rather than upright.
0: And when you're selecting like that,
1: it, is it takes fla- about 10
0: years. Wow. Is it the flavour uppermost or is it a good mix of characteristics well, you're First for? of all,
1: I will look for a, if I see a seedling and I'll go, hmm, I'll keep an eye on you. And then a year later, if it's still there, I will sort of start looking at the flower, looking how it's growing. Then I will let it go on growing where it was originated. So if you come to the farm at the moment, the original green dragon, until my husband has his way, is outside literally against one of my tunnels. It grew in the gravel next door to one of the tunnels. Just spontaneously? uh, Spontaneous, yes. I mean, it is across, it's obviously self-seeded. And then I will see how it propagates, because that is my love on the nursery's propagation. And if it runs true and doesn't revert or doesn't do anything daft, it takes about 10 years from seedling to sale.
0: Wow. It's a lot of hard work. And of course, a lot of people look at herbs and they see, you know, these little pots in the supermarket that they stick on their kitchen windowsills. If you were to encourage them,
1: you have to get into herbs. You know, what do you tell people? I think actually it was yesterday. It happened yesterday. I was having a conversation with someone and I had made dishes for him to try and to inspire his audience about using herbs, winter, what I call winter herbs at this time of year. And I mix my herbs together. And he said, you're just like a cocktail maker. And I'd never thought of that. I never thought of me being, a, yes, I guess I do, because I put celery leaf yeah, with mint and I had some thyme in it as well. And yeah, I'd mix them all together and mix that with some feta cheese and some pistachio and made a dip. He just was knocked out by the flavours. And I was thinking, most people, I'm sure, only use one herb at a time. Well, you're really missing a trick because if you combine, you see, if you think about it, carrots, okay, umbiliferous APAC family, whatever you want to call it, if you mix that with coriander, same family, and then you mix up again with some celery leaf, which is the wild celery. The three together, fantastic flavors, but people only ever try one. Mm. And they don't, they're, they're really, and then a little bit of chive, maybe. You know, you can go on just like a cocktail, mixing it together. And then you have this beautiful sensation in your mouth. And my mother always did that. So I took it for granted. And I hadn't even thought of it. That, yes, basically, I mix all my herbs. So you, you mentioned your mother, and herbs have always been
0: a part of your life. Then I take it yes. you couldn't imagine us bland people living without them
1: in I, the cooking. I, it goes back to the war again. In the war, I think it was the Italians who used to make the food go further by using herbs in a, you know combining herbs with rice and things to make the food taste better and make a meal into a feast my grandmother was hungarian originally i think and so therefore she always used herbs and and always combined herbs you know so she would put dill and mint together and if you go to the east or Otto langley i mean he it's always combining herbs you know he never has just one flavor and so uh, that's how I've always been brought up, not to have just one. So I will put mint and lemon, because um, lemons are a herb, by the way. Mm. Lemons are a herb. Yes, <laughs> they are indeed. So is pomegranate a herb, And you know, because they have medicinal properties as well as they have culinary properties. So, you know, I will combine all these
0: flavors together. So you've just mentioned a couple of things that I don't think many people would consider herbs. What what
1: What do you think the definition of a herb is? In the Oxford Dictionary, a herb is any plant that is of benefit to man. Mm, That's nice and broad. Uh, And remember, the word herb, everything was called a pot herb until the 16th century. was it the 17th century? I can remember. 1600s. And that's when the word vegetable was invented. So
0: if there's something else that you would like to bring with you into your fantasy garden that you would just really like to have... Is there anything else you'd last minute Last to include? Last minute.
1: Well, my grandmother, who I never really met because she died when I was very young, and this is on my mum's side, wrote cookbooks in the 40s and 50s. What was her name? Her name was Ruth Lewinsky, and she wrote Lovely Food. Next book was called More Lovely Food. Next book was called Food for Pleasure. And then she wrote one about Russian food. And she sounds a very jolly, witty person who I would have enjoyed the sharing of food. And if you think it's food that got me into gardening in the first place, I would really uh, enjoy experimenting with her recipes because I had to translate some of them into modern day because she never put weights and measures. For my cookbook which is sadly no longer in print and I yes I would really enjoy just that time to be able to share with her
0: so maybe not even the cookbook but if you could have share your fantasy garden
1: with someone it would be to meet her and sort of talk food and talk food (laughs) and talk and and share food with her I think you know with the herbs being the center point
0: And did she use a lot of
1: herbs in her cooking? Not that much, um, but she did use some. But it was my mother who used more, her daughter who used much more. So, I mean, for example, I could tell before I went to school the difference between apple mint and spearmint. And I could uh, tell the difference between dill and fennel without having to eat it to see which it was. Because she used all of those in her cooking. She was the one who combined them. But she got her inspiration from cooking from her mum, who I never really met.
0: And if you had to choose, let's say, I'm guessing you would want some way of using herbs in your dream garden. You couldn't just be growing them in there. So is there a, a particular kitchen utensil or a recipe or something, uh, maybe a nice outdoor kitchen that you would have to have in your dream oh, No, my garden? garden
1: would have to have somewhere to sit and stare. Mm-hmm. Somewhere to ch- share and eat. And somewhere that one could be outside at night. And it's not a campsite. <laughs> because <laughs> I said this to to Jessica, who I work with. And uh, I said, "Yeah, this is what my ideal garden would so well, it's definitely a campsite. Listen to you. Yeah, You're outside. You're sharing and you're eating and you're sleeping outside and everything, you know, and you can sit and stare. Yes, I guess the thing I would take are my snips. I have to have my snips with me because I'm forever cutting bits when I say, oh, that looks nice, or just nicking bits to eat. Um, but snips would be really good because I'd still take cuttings.
0: Oh, you see, I love this. Whenever I talk to gardening people about these dream garden, you say fantasy, you say ideal, and they're still so practical. What well, I'd have to have my snips. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and if there was something that you would never allow in the garden, that you would chop down, throw on the fire,
1: throw on the compost heap. I'm trying to learn to like conifers. There are not many conifers in my herb world. And I couldn't have an leylandii which I can never say.
0: leylandii yes. No, thank you. <laughs> Definitely not. The monstrous, green, tall, usually hedging, exactly. left over from the 70s. Which
1: takes all the nutrients out of the soil. Yeah, bare patches all around the trunk and smells, blocks out the light. And it smells awful. Mm. Yeah, the smell is also really important in the garden. You've got to have that, oh, what's that? And, you know, and you follow the scent. Mm-hmm. And on a warm summer's night, you know, you, know, you can, f- if you have any eucalyptus herbs, you know, like I grow Cedronella trifilla, that just smells gorgeous. You know, and you get a waft of it or a bird's thrown, flown through it, you know, and you suddenly get that scent. You know, and the times in the sun. Uh, it's just magic.
0: Whereas Lelandii, not magic not magic. Of course, the terrible thing about it is that it sort of goes all bare in the middle, doesn't it? And, and if you cut it, it doesn't really regenerate. So you're left with this huge hulking cage of sort of empty. Uh, someone will say it's
1: good for bird's nests."
0: I can't believe it. <laughs> no, I don't. I can't imagine that either. My parents have an enormous one at the back of their garden and we used to hide in it even when I was young. It's It's still a monster now. I think it must be 20 feet wide, if not more. Yes, yeah. So uh, there's a lot to answer for, I think, for that particular trend. Mm-hmm. But what do people do? They have them now. If they cut them down, it's going to be an awful lot of work, isn't it, to, to replace it with something. You could do a beach hedge. That would be a bit more interesting. It would, yeah. yeah. You just have to get the digger in to pull up all of the trunks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get to know your neighbours quite well for a exactly. while.
1: <laughs> That's a good thing.
0: Yeah. And for people out there who are starting their journey with herbs, if you pick two or three for them that you think would blow their minds, that they
1: have to try okay, uh, a starter pack, shall we no, say? No, 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 <laughs> no. Listen, it's really important that when you're starting a herb garden, you choose herbs that you're going to use, right? Because if I choose your herbs and you don't like them, you won't use them and they could be thugs, and they'll take over your garden. So it's really important that you choose herbs that you're going to use in your cooking and start there, and then start experimenting of putting marjoram and mint together with a little bit of dill, mixing the flavours. Don't put fennel and dill together, they don't go, but you'll discover that. But you know, And also with fennel, the seed of fennel, when it's in the green... Is like eating live aniseed balls. And it's just amazing, the flavour. And if you're making bread, to add the green seeds, just brilliant. There's so many parts to a herb that you can use, which people just think of the leaf. For instance, coriander. I've already said earlier, there's a member of the carrot family. That, you know, if you pull it, you have the roots. And you can use the roots in cooking because it's an annual. So, and... The other mistake people make with coriander is they think that it's a summer herb. No, it's a spring and autumn herb. It hates the summer. If it thinks it's going to die because it's hot, so in a heat wave it'll just go and go straight to flower. If it does go to flower, eat the flowers. They taste great. And the seed, stake it up because it's the seed gets heavy. The seed also tastes great.
0: Well, Jekka, you have told us that your fantasy garden would have elements of that beautiful framing devices that we see in the moon gates and scholastic gardens of Chinese gardens that would have that sense of nature being bigger than you that you experienced in the rainforest of Malaysia and in the plains of South Africa. It would have lots of mint family plants in it from the (laughs) Lamiache and it would also include your wonderful grandmother who wrote her cookbooks. It would have Beth Chatter and Penelope Hophouse there all having a great chat and there will be somewhere to sit and stare, somewhere to share food, somewhere to sleep outside but not a campsite and it would not have any Lelandiae. If you could pick just one more thing that you would have to bring with you to your fantasy garden, what would it be? My dog. Fantastic. What's their name? Tansy. And what kind of breed is Golden Tansy? Golden Retriever. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, you definitely have to bring Tansy. That was Jekka McVicker, plantswoman and creator of Jekka's Herbfest, which takes place from Friday the 30th of June to Sunday the 2nd of July at her nursery in South Gloucestershire. Find out more at Jekka's.com. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. You can find lots more gardening inspiration on our website gardensillustrated.com. See you next time.